This is The Juggernaut Interviews, and I'm Snigda Sur. In this series, I'm talking to South Asian founders who have gone out and raised funding at different stages of their journey. There are plenty of podcasts out there about entrepreneurs. What makes this one any different? In this series, you'll hear stories from founders smack dab in the middle of building with wildly diverse journeys. I'm a founder who's raised venture capital myself, so you can trust that I'll ask the tough questions. I started The Juggernaut, a media company that tells South Asian stories because I was tired of reading the occasional news story about us. I wanted there to be more and not just about the usual suspects. So what you will hear on this show is exactly that, founders who are not the usual suspects. Today's episode is with Kulveer Tagger, co-founder and CEO of Zeus Living. It might seem impossible to get a company like Airbnb to invest millions in a startup that offers, quote, flexible ways to rent. But that's what Kulveer did with Zeus. After this conversation, you'll find out exactly how Kulveer pulled it off. His entrepreneurial journey includes moving to SF from England for Y Combinator. Once accepted into the Silicon Valley Accelerator program in its earliest years, he co-founded Octomatic with his cousin and now Y Combinator partner Harjeet Tagger and Patrick and John Carlson. Yes, the Stripe Brothers, founders of the Payments Unicorn. Years later in 2015, Colvier would go on to co-found Zeus and raise over $130 million for the company to date. The startup offers furnished housing with flexible lease dates. Sounds a lot like Airbnb, you say, but I'll let you hear directly from Colvier why it's not. Bonus fact, did you know that Colvier almost became an actor and auditioned for one of Riz Ahmed's plays and that his family's history spans four continents? I'm Snigda, and this is my conversation with Kulveer. You're just a new dad. There's a lot going on. Yeah. So I'm going to ask hopefully the easiest question of today. Sure. Tell me a little bit about Zeus and how it works. So Zeus is a two-sided network. On one side, we have our residents. And so there are people who are looking to rent furnished homes. The idea is that you can be completely flexible. So you can pick six weeks, six months. The homes are fully provisioned. So you just walk in, sit on the couch, and everything is ready and prepared for you. And then the other side of the network is homeowners. And for them, we, we're basically a tech-enabled property manager. We can turn these assets into passive income streams. So you know, people buy their first home and then they move away and they want to hold on to the home, but they don't necessarily want to be a, a landlord or a property manager. So we can just take that all away from them and then just send them a check at the end of each month. And so we're connecting these two sides and it's kind of like a managed marketplace. One of the things that's really interesting about your business is that Airbnb is one of your investors. And you yeah. probably get asked this a lot. How is this different from an Airbnb or a Sonder or corporate housing? So tell us a little bit more, Kulveer, about what makes living in a Zeus home so different? You know, the first thing with respect to Airbnb is I think they're more of a demand aggregator. They're a channel. We list our homes on Airbnb. They don't actually manage the homes. Hosts manage the homes. So in that respect, we're more like a host. You know, we're professionalized. We're at scale. And, and we have all these other things that are different. You could maybe make the analogy of, you know, what Amazon is to eBay, you know, that's what we're trying to be to Airbnb. So we're not really shooting for people that are going for a weekend somewhere or a week-long trip and, you know, may typically stay in a hotel or a short-term Airbnb. Our product is more geared towards people that are living somewhere for a few months at a time. It can be longer. And so that's, you know, if you're moving to a new city, 
if you're going somewhere for some project or site-based travel, or now actually what we've seen since the pandemic is the rise of the digital nomad and people that just want to explore living in other parts of the country now that they're decoupled from their office. I have to ask, how do you get someone like an Airbnb to invest? The original idea happened, I think how like, you know, the best startup ideas happen, which is you encounter a pain point yourself. So my co-founder, Joe, was moving from San Francisco to Palo Alto. And I just remember that process of him trying to rent out his home, find a place to live in Palo Alto was very time consuming. And I would get frustrated at how frustrated he was getting. I remember I was lying in bed at night and I just had this idea. I was like, what if you could make this turnkey? We can just take the unit off a, a homeowner's hands. We know how to price it. I've moved countries four times and I've had, you know, bad landlords and bad sort of renting experiences full of friction. Um, So that was the original idea. But I did very early on actually just email uh, Brian Chesky of Airbnb and and run the idea past him because I was like, you know, I don't want to do something that maybe, you know, they're just going to view as competitive and, and try and crush or compete. And so through the Y Combinator network, I met Brian back in 2010 when Airbnb was about 10 people and I tried to invest in it back then and I wasn't able to and he tried to recruit myself and, and my co-founder Srini and it didn't work out. I was living in a different country, but I pinged him and then he was just very helpful and supportive from the start. He's like, yes, these long-term bookings happen on Airbnb. We really like high quality hosts. Let me know how I can be helpful. And so over the first few years, he would make introductions for me if I needed them and, and just help us. And then I think it was late 2018, 2019, you know, I, he was on my investor update email list. And I think he just said like, Kulvi, I'd like to help you more formally. Would you consider an investment? One of the things that's really interesting about your background is you're not just a founder. No one's just a founder, but you've also been an angel investor. You've also been a serial entrepreneur. Before Zeus, you've built Bozo.com and Octomatic. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I think my journey was, I took a gap year when I was 18. This concept's a little bit more popular in England or Europe. And before university, I worked at Deutsche Bank in London for, for nine months. And I definitely remember having this desire of wanting financial independence or security growing up. I grew up in a single parent household and um, I was like, I I don't want to be as constrained as an adult. And someone had just told me like finance is the way to go or banking is. I didn't think too much about it. What year was this, by the way, just to set the scene? 2001. Wow. Like right after like dot com bubble. Yeah. Yeah. I went into this banking path and then there I met someone called Sachin Dougal. He was another 18-year-old, and he'd started a business selling computers. He would build computers and sell them. And then that was the first time I was like, oh, wait, there's another path. I can be an entrepreneur. And I I didn't really grow up thinking that. Um, Originally, I wanted to be a pilot and then like a soccer player, but wasn't good enough. So then I went, I did this gap year, and I went traveling around the world for six months. And I think that's where, again, the seed was planted of, I, I wanted to design a life where I could be somewhat mobile and live in different places around the world. And then when I went to university, so I went to Oxford, I remember in the Freshers' Fair, there was an entrepreneurs club and I just like signed up for it. And I, saw, I was like, this sounds interesting. And basically I met this group of people. I joined the committee. And at that time there was this conference called Silicon Valley Comes to Oxford and people like Max Levchin and Ev Williams and Reed Hoffman would come. And then I was just exposed to like this world of startups and, and S- San Francisco and the Valley. And and I took a trip out here six weeks before my finals. So this is now 2005. And I saw the Google Plex and I saw some of these startups. I met people like Naval, Ravikant, and I was just blown away. I was like, okay, 
the next century is going to be like dominated by tech. This is where the world is changing. This is where all the ambitious people are. And it was just a very different culture to what I was experiencing in London and like in that sort of finance scene. And then at university, we started this marketplace for college students to trade textbooks and stuff. And again, it was that experience of like, hey, man, I'm having to buy all this stuff brand new. I'm, I'm sure there's people that could give me secondhand items. And why is it so expensive? So we started Boso. Um, it stands for buy or sell online. When I came to the US, everyone pronounced it Bozo. And I just, I was so embarrassed about the naming. I don't think I'm that good at naming. Paul Graham would begin his Y Combinator dinners by saying like, all right, who, you know, who are the Bozos that did this? And I was like, wait, is he referring to us? Or is he just generically saying, we don't have Bozo the Clan in England. Anyways, I did that startup. We raised some angel money in London. It was insanely hard. You were just fundraising from like bankers and lawyers and, you know, the most risk averse really people angels. ever. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. And I'd have to do like 10 year projections and all this stuff. And then we got into Y Combinator. And even that, that's kind of like a funny story or a lucky story. Um, just struggling with the startup in London, I think. Google like startup mistakes or mistakes that startups make. And then a Paul Graham essay came up and I think it was the one like top 18 mistakes of the startup. And point number three was like being in the wrong location. And then we found out why Combinator and we applied. I was, I was working with my cousin, uh, Harj Tagger. And again, it was this just like long shot thing. I remember on the train ride home after work, I just spent half an hour like editing the application that Harj had written. But we were invited for an interview in Boston in November 2006. We got in, we were learning how to code and Ev Williams had become an advisor of mine at that point. And then I think Paul Graham, when he saw Ev Williams on the cap table, he was just like, oh, Ev's an investor, then we've got to invest. And I just stayed quiet because I was like, he didn't really invest, he was an advisor. But um, <laughs> I think Paul, Paul loved that we were learning how to code. And then we got in and then I moved out here. You know, three months later, we met Patrick Collison and John Collison. They were applying to YC with a similar idea. Wait, to a similar idea of textbook selling at that point it was more that like we knew e-commerce was changing Ah. like automatic was basically trying to be shopify but Mm. we back then made the mistake of building it on the ebay platform itself and patrick and john had built something called shopper in ireland and and then we teamed up and you know we needed a technical co-founder and we'd already had funding from like paul bookite and others and so we joined forces and then automatic uh happened Okay, so I did not realize this. So you were building Automatic with the future founders of Stripe with yeah. advising from like Ev Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were old school. I think we were also like Chris Sucker's first angel investment. He wrote a blog post about us. And this was like super early days. And, and I sometimes tell people like San Francisco in 2007, it felt like there were maybe 500 or a thousand people doing startups in the city at that point. Like the center of gravity was still Palo Alto, but you could go out to like bars here and restaurants and you would just like run into the same people. And it was, it still felt niche to be doing a startup. And like, I I think a lot of Paul Graham's ethos at Y Combinator was, you know, kind of backing the underdog and like the college kids where traditional VCs were maybe looking at, you know, the MBAs and people with more of a proven track record. But it was a great time. I I had a blast being here back then. Yeah. And then we ended up selling that company. (laughs) What were the lessons you learned from running both Boso, not Bozo, and Octomatic? I I just generally think at that age, when, how old was I? I was about 24. I was very impatient. 
And I kind of just wanted success to happen like very quickly. And I've realized that I think the best decisions you make in life are when you just have a longer horizon. And I remember startup school back then, Mark Zuckerberg had spoken and he talked about how your length of horizon, if you're thinking 10 years out, thinking 20 years out, it can be such a sort of differentiator. We probably sold too early and then we probably sold to the wrong company. We had a term sheet from Facebook and we would have been their second ever acquisition. We all just you know, wanted everything to happen now and then get on to the next startup. So I think that was probably one of my big lessons. I think the other one I took away was around uh, just being intentional with your culture. You know, it was me, Hodge, Patrick, John, our engineer, Brian, there was like five guys living in a two bedroom apartment. And we had a very sort of jokey, banterish culture. There were some times where it kind of like slippery sloped and it was maybe a bit too much or a bit mean. But then for the second startup or other startups, I was like, hey, I, I've seen how this can go from great to bad if you're not like intentional about it. Like, let's just set that in stone and define our values. Maybe the other large one was, yeah, that first startup, like I can say we probably did it or I probably did it because I was trying to make money. And I actually think money is a terrible motivator for doing a startup. There's such a grind that if, the, if that's the only thing that that's kind of pushing you, like it's just not worth it. There's plenty of other ways to make money. So I made sure before the second startup that I was like, okay, what are my motivations? I'm just going to underline this for people who haven't figured this out. But Kuvir was a PP&E major from Oxford. This is like the major that all the famous politicians have gotten from Benazir Bhutto of Pakistan to Riz Ahmed, a very famous actor, to, um, you know, Malala Yousafzai. So you're in this you're in this very prestigious program, not very technical. You come out, you're young, you learn how to code, you get into YC, you get all these fantastic teammates, advisors. You've sold your company and now you're becoming an angel investor. There isn't much data to go off of it at the early stages. So what's your playbook? I, I remember this experience with Paul Graham where when we were working on Automatic, there came a point where we felt like it was failing and it wasn't going to work. I think we sent him an email. He was in England at the time and so were we and we went for breakfast. And myself and Hodge, we were very just nervous that like, hey, this guy gave us money and it feels like we've lost it and this isn't going to work. And we were telling him this over breakfast and then like literally without skipping a beat, he was just like, okay, so what else do you want to work on? I'll give you more money. I'll invest in you again. And Harj and I just had this moment where we're like, what? Um, because it was not like that in England and like British culture is way more punitive around failure, I think, than Silicon Valley culture. And I was like, and then there was a part of me as well, which was like, how wealthy are these people where they don't care about like 50 or a few hundred thousand? And it's just like, voila, I'm going to go write you another check. And so it was just a kind of like, I believe in people and I believe in your, your ambition and your determination. And that's what I'm backing here, right? Like the specifics of the idea don't matter as much because that's probably going to change. And so when I started angel investing, the first thing I did was I would go to the Y Combinator demo days. And it was a little bit of that same culture of like giving back. I was a founder, people invested in me, took a risk in me. Now, how can I do this for like the people coming behind me? I mean, YC just had an amazing filtering system or screening system that like, again, looking back, if I just invested in every YC startup, would have done phenomenally well. Um, and what year think- was this when you exited? Exited in 2008 and then started yeah, that's investing. that's still quite early. That's the yeah. Great Recession. <laughs> like- yeah. Basically, yeah. But I think the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that the next big company or the next world-changing company, you can't really predict 
how what it's going to look like and it's probably not going to look like what you've already seen so if you've got any kind of filter like that then you're probably going to miss it and i remember going to demo days and there were so many companies that sometimes i would just be like i just have to like filter out all the international ones because i just can't look at all these companies or all right now i'm going to filter out all the I don't know, hardware ones, you'd have these like dumb filters and they would never really work because these amazing companies and founders can come from anywhere and and in any industry. Um, So I learned basically that you are backing the people and I think it's all about getting to know the founder and, and the quality of them and their vision and their mission and you know their resilience and, and all of that. And then also just being basically a bit of a generalist because the things that are going to change the world, they're, they're not going to be obvious at front. And I mean, my co-founders obviously went on and started Stripe, and they've talked about this a lot, but payments was not a hot category. Like everyone thought payments was just a death trap almost for, for startups, and then, and then look at Stripe. I think this is a, such a fascinating conversation because I have this conversation with so many of my founder friends every day. Um, I think you're seeing this a lot, Gulvir, right now, where there's this explosion of like crypto, NFTs, like Web3, and actually taking a step back in history and looking at secular trends. None of the unicorns today were ever in a hot sector when they first started, from Robinhood to Stripe to Coinbase. I believe like the Paul Graham story was that nobody wanted to invest in Coinbase when it, when it first came out of YC, yeah. which is incredible to think of. Yeah, And you never know what, because the cycle is about seven years, you never know what in seven to 10 years is going to be the game-changing company. And it probably yeah. wasn't the hottest thing back in the day. Yeah, you know, YC, when they sort of advise founders who are starting to become angel investors like this is one of the lessons that they tell them is that like look the company that's super hot at demo day and they have a lot of data now i mean they can do plenty well but typically those like huge huge companies weren't super hot on demo day they were kind of maybe middling or even just ignored and it can take times and again that's just the nature of like i don't know the the sort of like unknown unknowns aspect of like the future where we can have theories and all of that but it's very hard to predict. And so again, I, I feel like YC has the best approach here, which is, you know, just invest really early in, in the best founders and then see what happens. So you had big plans for 2020, including expanding internationally. And then COVID obviously had different plans for Zeus. You wrote this uh, blog post on Business Insider where you had two dramatic layoffs, at least 60% of the company. You applied for a PPV loan, gave it back. You also refunded millions of dollars to customers. And you kind of previewed this idea that I think the Airbnb team also talked about, which is, you know, business decisions versus principal decisions. When you're going through such a tough time, how did you make those series of decisions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself because like it was just so intense that that or my brain has like suppressed the, some of those memories. So I'll, I'll try and remember. Um, December of 2019, we announced our Series B and, you know, Airbnb, was the largest investor in that round and we had just so much momentum and we were adding homes all around the country we were going to internationalize we we're going to london we we're going to toronto i built this amazing executive team staffing up and it was like literally blitz scaling defined and then it was like every single day in march it felt like hour by hour the world was getting worse and worse we didn't know if we could like eat our groceries without wiping them down first and are we all going to die and so there was a lot of stress and I remember when the stock market had that first massive crash and then when we closed the borders or Trump did the t- travel ban and it's like, 
oh, these people have started canceling these bookings. We had a a $10 million contract with Facebook for the summer. That's not going to happen anymore. And then I had these moments of like, is this all unraveling? Like everything I've just spent five years building and put so much effort into and heart into, and it's all going to be zero. And then randomly also finding these moments of resolve where I was like, no, going to find a way through this. It ain't over till it's over. And we've got people. And then honestly, I, w- I would kind of like just talk to my brain in the shower and be like, all right, brain, figure something out. Like there is a solution here. What is it? And so, you know, relying on that previous experience about thinking long-term, when we were thinking about refunding customers' money, I was like, I still want to do business with all of these people. It's easy for me to just hold on to their money, but no, we want to be around for a very long time. I, I think it all began with that decision that like, we're going to make it through. Like that's where it started. And honestly speaking, there was a point where It seemed like it wouldn't. I remember some Zoom calls with my co-founders and maybe the board, and I screenshotted it because we all just looked so miserable. And it felt like the phone call where we're acknowledging that this is it, we we just have to shut down. And then it came back to like, no, we're going to figure this out. And then from that, every other decision followed. So it's like, okay, if we're going to figure this out, the first thing we need to stabilize is our occupancy. How do we do that? Or, you know, taking care of the employees the safety aspect of it and our residents and plenty of people would shelter in place in the Zeus homes. And we ended up, we're like, okay, healthcare workers, travel nurses, they need a place to live. People need a place to quarantine. There were students getting displaced from dorms. Can we house them? And then that sort of creative part of the brain that was trying to problem solve that kicked in. And then we found these solutions one by one by one and turned the ship around. In terms of like laying off teammates, right? That's like one of the hardest decisions founders have to go through. What happened with us was that Q1 of 2020, I was going out to fundraise for my Series C. And then I shut off all the sort of emails to like start the process. That was the day the stock market crashed. And then I wasn't really getting responses. And people were like, hey, with all the uncertainty in the world and like people like, we've just got to protect our existing investments. And so I, I knew that, the Series C that we planned, it just wasn't going to materialize. So we just needed to conserve our runway. It was painful because everyone who lost their job, it wasn't really because they weren't doing a good job. We've just had this, I think, the world's biggest demand shock ever. I definitely remember thinking, like, as we get through this, I want to hire these people back. And we've hired, I think, maybe 30-ish or so people back to the company. But that was kind of the logic. It was like, how much runway do we have? Do we need to survive? How long is this thing going to be? What's the size of the lifeboat? And again, like I'd never done done layoffs before and then doing them over Zoom, it just felt so impersonal. Um, and it was just sad. And then we, we were expecting to get this PPP money and then we couldn't keep the money because of there was just ambiguity about who it's meant for. And then, then we had to do the second set of layoffs. And I, I also remember, it, it seems really crazy thinking back back to it now, but... That March, April time, it almost felt like these shutdowns. Remember, didn't they say like the shutdowns were for two weeks, right? We're shutting down for two weeks. And then we were like, all right, let's be conservative. Assume things are going to shut down till the summer, like June, July or August. And then, of course, we were like, oh, this thing is going to go on for the whole year and maybe even longer. I want to now kind of step into the latest chapter, which is you're fresh off the heels of a new fundraise. You've just closed, I believe, $55 million dollars. You've kind of gone through pain and hell, come out on the other side, emerged, and now you've successfully finished a fundraise you were going to do pre-pandemic. What was that like? What was the pitch? We'd made all these changes to the business. We'd found like new sources of demand. We'd sort of adapted our business model. We were listing third-party 
um, inventory on our site, the unit economics and all the metrics started looking good again. And we started to actually see year over year improvements where I could tell the story that, hey, I'm still in a pandemic. There's no international travel. That used to be a third of our business. There's no business travel. Like that was a large part of our business. But look at our performance on our portfolio. It's doing really well. And hey, the world has changed now because of remote work. And this is a huge new source of demand for us. And in some ways, the vision that I originally had for Zeus, which is changing how people live and just making it much more flexible and turnkey and and all of that. It was being brought forward. Despite all the struggles of the pandemic, in some ways for our business, it transformed it in a positive way. We just had ridiculous focus after we had to lay people off. Like we wrote so much code. I remember thinking like when your back's against the wall, it's like very easy what you have to do because there's no like debate and like all of that. It's just like, I've got to do this thing and do it. And then sometimes in a startup, you have all these things and options and blah, blah, blah. And you spend all this time like deliberating. So, so basically the business really improved and we met this investor called Susquehanna International Group, which I hadn't heard of before last summer. And then it turns out they're this kind of under the radar, very data-driven investor. And they own, I think like 20% of ByteDance, and they've got all these other successful investments. We we were introduced to them. We demoed our technology and our data. We sort of told the vision and how like real estate is basically fundamentally changing. And they just really liked the business. And basically they, they led this round and they came in. And it's been great because as investors, they're very ambitious. And and they've told me they're like, hey Colvier, you know, this isn't money out of a fund. This is partner money. Your job is to build the best business you can, maximize business value, think long term. You don't have to do, you know, any sort of weird things for fundraising. And uh, we want to be your capital partners all the way. And so that was just awesome, awesome to hear. And I feel very lucky for that. And then it was like at the turn of the year, it was just like heads down and execute on the business. And that's probably what I enjoy doing most is problem solving. And I could just see how, you know, now the foundation we built, preparing to scale, broadening our positioning and how we thought about the user experience and all of these things. It's like, it was great. I got to focus on that in 2021 and and into the future now. So what's next for the company? You know, we want to make it easy for people to live well, wherever and whenever they want. Originally, when I used to talk about my mission, it was a little bit more around opportunity. The idea was make it easy for people to live where opportunity takes them. And that was kind of informed by how my life changed when I came to the Bay Area. And I've I've had experiences where I've had like friends in New York have great opportunities come up in the Bay Area. And then they just don't take it because they're like, oh, I have this great apartment and moving such a pain. And there's so much friction in moving. And I don't think anyone really thinks of like renting as like a great experience. No one looks forward to finding a place to rent. So I wanted to change that. And and then post-pandemic, I realized, well, it's not just moving for opportunity. It can just be moving for like happiness. And you want to be closer to family or maybe there's a romantic relationship or maybe you just fit better in a new city. The other thing that um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in is I feel like a lot of real estate startups or or just real estate in general, everyone always talks about the specs. Like this is a two bed, a two bath, and maybe it has floor to ceiling windows and and stuff like that. But actually, if you try and figure out what makes someone happy where they live, it can be stuff like 
there's a great coffee shop at the end of the street, or I'm close to an amazing grocery store, or there's a park across the street. And so we we like asking our users, you know, what is it that you enjoyed living here? And of course, some of it can be the home itself, but some of it can be the stuff around it. And then in the future, when someone similar comes, so if a family is relocating to the Bay Area, we can actually say to them, well, here's where all the other families that relocated to the Bay Area, here's where they enjoyed living and why, and like helping facilitate that. I want to rewind the clock a little bit and talk a little bit about your upbringing. You mentioned in past interviews, you grew up in a single family home. Tell me about your family. Yeah, I love talking about my family. So, so we're from Punjab, we're from the North, backgrounds being farmers. My maternal granddad, when he was 16, his dad said to him, like, you got to keep working on the farm or like the farm is the family business. And he was in schooling and he was like, no, I want to continue my education. At 16, he pretty much ran away from home from Punjab and he went to Delhi and he taught himself English and then he went into the railways and he started off, I think, as maybe a clerk and then he became a guard. And then he ended up as the, um, the chairman of the Western Railway Union. And I have these memories where like in 1989, I went to India and he was retiring I think we took this train from, it was maybe Bombay to Punjab. It's like a two or three day trip. And every stop we'd stop at, I think it was his last trip uh, as he was retiring. There would be people at this train stations with garlands, like hundreds of people like greeting him. And and then when we got to the final destination in Punjab, there was like a band playing. And I, and I remember thinking like, who who is my granddad and what is going on? And then I basically just learned he was an incredibly giving person and he cared about you know workers' rights. And I think... At some point, he was even imprisoned because he was in the union and he was trying to improve like working conditions. And so he was very forward thinking. And because he was in the railways, my mom then got to travel a lot growing up. So she got to go to Kashmir, Gujarat and all these other places in India. And I think her horizons were broadened quite a lot. And then on my dad's side of the family, my dad was from Kenya. And I think it was my great granddad who'd gone from India to Nairobi. And you know how like the British took people to work in the civil service. Then my dad's dad, he was basically an entrepreneur and also a sportsman. So he played Olympic field hockey for Kenya and he was their coach. And then my dad's brother played uh, field hockey. And then, so I come from this village in Punjab, it's called Sinsarpur, where there's actually been like a whole bunch of Olympians. And when India won Olympic gold in hockey in like the 50s, and I think a few times afterwards, there were like seven people from this like one street and it's in the Guinness Book of Records and stuff. And so anyways, I didn't really know all of this as a kid, but my dad's family came to Punjab. It was arranged marriages. My mom married my dad. I think my mom was 21 at the time and uh, she went to Kenya, but like the marriage wasn't great. And then we moved to England when Kenya became a little unsafe and then they separated when I was seven. And then I didn't really see my dad's family too much after that. And then he passed away when I was 14. But then, so then it was basically my mom bringing up me and my sister. I have a sister who's three years older named Sharon. And I remember I went to like these inner city schools in London that were just like terrible. And I remember my granddad from India, from Punjab had come to like help after the separation and he would just teach me math. And my math got to a very advanced level. And then I went to this school and like they were barely teaching the two times table to like seven-year-olds. And my mom saw this ad in a newspaper for a private school for an entrance exam. And she took me there and her friends were saying stuff to her like, you're crazy. You can't afford it. What are you doing? But then I did really well on this test. And then the school was like, great, we would love to give Kulvira a place. And then my mom's like, okay, well, thank you, but I can't really afford it. 
And so then they held a special governor's meeting and then they basically just decided to pay for my education. So from the age of, I think, eight till 18, I went to this private school in London called Eltham College. And that changed my life because then that was a school that was more academically minded. And, you know, kids would then graduate and go to Oxford and Cambridge. And so I'm very grateful for like the steps my mom took. It was a bit of a struggle, like, you know, living in London on, on one person's salary. My mom was a travel agent. And that's where I felt like this, like, all right, I'm going to make money when I'm older because I don't like this type feeling. And now they're in Vancouver in Canada. And so one of the first things I did when I made a bit of money was I bought this home and my mom lives there. My sister lives there now. My maternal granddad, he'd made us a very close family unit, like my mom's brothers and sisters. And so, yeah, I carry that with me today. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing. There's so many continents that your family is from. <laughs> um, yeah. I have two last questions. You might have known that I was going to ask this, but you just had a kid. Tell yeah. us more about that experience because founders don't often have many resources yeah. when they're going through having a kid. They have another baby, which is often their startup. And now you have two. So what, what's that experience been like? Um, okay. So first off, when people would ask me this, my, my response would be, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it is so hard. <laughs> All those surveys about life satisfaction drops after you have kids they're all true. Uh, and um, <laughs> Don't tell me that. <laughs> and the sleep deprivation is really hard. And, you know, again, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this because I was the one that said I wanted kids and I couldn't wait to be a dad. And I've been thinking about that since I was a kid as well, because I didn't really have that, have a dad bringing me up. And so I've, I've, I've just thought about the type of father I want to be. So early on, I was like, oh my God, what have we done? This is so hard. He was born two and a half weeks early. And like the diaper changes, I would just get them wrong. And so like every time he peed, which would be frequently, he would soil himself. And I'm like, oh God, I have to like change this whole thing. And, and so just those first few weeks were a whirlwind with massive sleep deprivation. I thought I was going to take two weeks of paternity leave. I took three. The company gave me four and, and maybe I can do some more later. Okay. And then now he's approaching three months. Now it's like just the best thing ever. He's smiley. He's responsive. He makes eye contact. He's babbling and talking and playing. And like, it's interesting because as a founder, I mean, again, this is a bit of the truth. Like before at about 9 p.m., you know, after dinner and hanging out for a bit, I'd open up my laptop again and you get on the emails or you get on work. And like now it's like, all right, well, I can play with him or I can do more email. I can play with him or do more email. I'd rather like play with him. And so I don't think ambition is at all like diminished. Mm -hmm. If anything, ambition goes up because I'm like, I want to make a great world for him to grow up in and et cetera. But there is a little bit of your time priorities change. So it, it's an interesting transition. And we ended up having help. My mom came here and so she took care of all the meals and my sister came and helped and like laundry. So we just, we were lucky in that we could just focus on him, but it was still a lot. Um, and I do think like night nannies are worth it uh, because that cycle of like the feed, the diaper change, the burp at night can take an hour or so. Um, and so if someone else can like do all these other things, like you can, you have a shot at sleeping. But yeah, I'm like over the moon and I love him to bits and I'm grateful to my wife because I've seen the journey she's been on as a mother and it's hard. And I remember after he was born, one of the first things I did was I called my mom and I was like, thank you for giving birth to me because I just saw how hard like the last <laughs> nine months have been. And uh, I, I don't think I've ever said that before. 
Last question for you. You talk a lot about scaling with purpose. What does that mean to you today? Oh, great question. When I think about scaling a company, I think the way I found to do it best is like really basically sticking to your values. For Zeus, we picked transparency. I was a little bit inspired by by Stripe and just we have all the information accessible to everyone uh, about the business. We have been customer centric at Zeus. I always try and frame them in terms of trade-offs, right? Because if you just pick something in isolation, like integrity, it's like, well, why wouldn't you have that? But we know that with transparency, sometimes it can be a bit of discomfort. Um, being customer centric, sometimes like it can hurt your bottom line or whatever. Then we have being iterative. I think that's kind of an obvious one. Again, we're a process-heavy business, and we find these processes, and then it can often be that that wasn't the best one. We have to like rip it up and try again. And then being humble is one of our core values. And again, it's just like the attitude to learning and and like mistakes and like the type of people we want to work with. We just found that one is a is a great sort of filter. Obviously, on the personal side there's the the family and I want to be a great father, a great son, a great husband and all of that. But for the company, yeah, I'll truly think we've succeeded if we can change how people live and and then just give them that mobility. And I think, I I sort of feel like humans, we're closer to the hunter-gatherers than we are to when we started farming in our history and we started settling down in one place. I think we have a little bit of that wanderer and explorer spirit in us. And like the last 50 years, we've had to be like super sort of stuck in one location where work is, that would be the impact I want to have. You know, with something like Zeus, you can go anywhere. So that's what I'm trying to drive. Kuvir Tagger is a founder and CEO of Zeus. That's it for the show this week. Next week, I'll be talking to Sidra Kasim, co-founder and COO of footwear company Adams. If you like the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. And share it with someone who you think would love to hear Kulvir's story. Natalia Alcantara produced the series. Golda Arthur is our showrunner. And Josh Deng is our sound engineer. Sahal Ansari composed our theme music and Minna Shoab designed our cover art. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>